Today we're continuing our conversation, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, the, uh, the beautiful Gospel of Matthew. We've been walking through that uh, just chapter by chapter, and uh, today we're closing out a section that we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, the most important, the most famous sermon ever preached, ever. And uh, so Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So today is kind of wrapping up that section. And, uh, and so we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 28. And uh, we'll talk about it. So um, this is what it says. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And then the rain fell. And the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Then Jesus had finished these words. The crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as not one having authority, not as their scribes. Uh, he says this, everyone who hears these words of mine. Um, what he's saying is, hey, in conclusion, uh, we, we've had, uh, we've covered a lot of territory through the sermon. And, and he does. And we've spent several weeks on it. And so just to recap real quick, uh, these are actually just kind of the sermon headers for the last few weeks, but just kind of a quick little recap. What, what has he said? What are the words of his that he is uh, asking them to, uh, to reflect upon? He, the, we, we talked about the first week, the Beatitudes. And uh, this is, uh, this is a, a, a list of things, that, qualities that describes who Jesus is and therefore who we are in Christ. Uh, then the next week we talked about the fact that Jesus calls us salt and light. And so this is uh, a picture of Jesus pouring out his grace and his love on us to such a way that such a degree that we share it, that it radiates uh, to the world around us. Jesus delivers the impossible standard. Uh, he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Uh, that's where we talked about his declaration, be perfect as his father is perfect. Um, we talked about Jesus teaching us how to pray. The Lord's Prayer and, and just a conversation about prayer in general. Uh, that was a couple of weeks ago. And so uh, we talked about Jesus encouraging us to lift up our eyes, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and everything else will be added to us. Um, Jesus told us not to uh, judge each other. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, don't judge lest you be judged. And that's the, uh, the conversation about the fact that we all have logs in our eyes. But the good news is he's forgiven us uh, despite that. And also, uh, I think this is last week, Jesus shows us the way. He is the way, the truth, and life. And so he talked about the, the narrow path, the wide path, and, uh, and Jesus is the way. He is the path. And so uh, those are the words that he has uh, been talking about. So he says, whoever hears these words of mine and acts on them. So everyone in this crowd... Unless they weren't paying attention. They were on their iPhones while he was preaching. I don't know. Maybe they were. At least they had tablets. <laughs> Get it? Oh, God, never mind. Um, so they, uh, they heard the words. They heard what he said. But there is, he, he lays out a disclaimer. He says, now everyone that hears these words of mine and acts on them. 
So now he's, now he's kind of dividing the crowd a little bit. So everyone heard the words. Some were going to act on them, and some are not. And then he describes what happens with the folks that act on them versus the folks that do not. And so um, now, this is where, to me, the Sermon on the Mount gets a little dicey uh, in terms of interpretation, in terms of uh, what do I do with this? So we spent several weeks talking about this amazing sermon and Jesus lifting our eyes uh, above our own self-righteousness, our own pursuits of salvation, our own self-salvation projects, and asking us to fix our eyes on him, the author and the perfecter of our faith, the one who has actually fulfilled the law for us on our behalf. And so uh, this entire message, he's been lifting our eyes. Seek first the kingdom, fix your eyes on him. And then we hear the words, act on them. And there's something in la cabeza. There's something in our brains that hears that phrase, hears these words of mine, and acts on them. And now we start manufacturing a to-do list. So now it's like, okay, you, you laid out the game plan. Now give me the ball and let me run with it. And so this is my end of the bargain. And so what we do is we start turning the Sermon on the Mount into uh, instructions. And we, we, start, we start, turn it into a, a manual for how we're meant to live life. Now, this whole conversation, all of it, from, from the first moment he spoke to the last words that he speaks on the Sermon on the Mount, he is wrestling control away from us. He is, he's trying his best to shift our focus off of ourselves onto him. And then for whatever reason, we hear the phrase, act on them, and then we take, we, 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 we take the steering wheel back. And we're like, okay, I got this. And so we, for whatever reason, there's something inside of us that insists on taking the reins. Now, I'm all for doing I'm all for doing hard things. I'm all for living a life that is somewhat uncomfortable because I think a life of faith will always be uncomfortable. If, if there's any way to sum up a life of faith, walking by faith, living by faith, I would say it is the word uncomfortable. It is, uh, it is unselfish. It is outside of self. And, and so I'm all for that. I'm all for adding works. I'm all for uh, doing things because they're meant to be done. They're supposed to be done. But the important part of this sermon is is to not create a to-do list for us to do, but to consider where all this comes from and why we do what we do. He is digging underneath the surface to the motivation behind why we do what we do. Why is it that we, that we try to do the right thing? Why is it that we try to love and serve other people? Why is it that we, we don't do certain things that we realize we shouldn't do? Why is that? He's dealing with the motivation of our hearts. And so when he says to hear these words and act on them, maybe he's, he's alluding to something different than just... Um, marching orders, or a to-do list. Let me read a, another verse to you. This is in John chapter 5. 
the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 24 and 25, it captures the same idea using different words. And so it, I just want to kind of, I, I want to throw this out there just to cause us to think a little bit about what Jesus is saying here. Truly, truly, I say to you, hear, he who hears my word, this is Jesus talking, these are red letters, my word being the gospel, the truth, and believes him who has sent me, believes in God, has eternal life. He and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly I say to you, I say to you that an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, he adds action to the, the, the idea of hearing, hearing the gospel. Here's these words of mine. He adds actions, uh, but it's different than what we might assume acts on them means. He puts it this way, hears and believes. Now, is believing an action? Not to us. Believing to us, uh, for whatever reason, never comes into the equation in terms of action. In fact, uh, if, if we talk to someone and they say they're going through a tough struggle and they're talking about praying and that, we're praying, we're praying for God to intervene, we're believing for God to move, uh, there's something in us that wants to prompt them to also talk about and consider, but what else are you doing? Because believing is not enough of an action for us. But I want to, I want to turn your attention to one other, one other verse. This is actually just one chapter after what we just read in John 5. This is John 6, 28 through 29. Uh, there is a very important question asked of Jesus. And it's a question that we should all consider. It's a question we should all ask. But uh, this is what's asked of him. Verse 28. What shall we do? so that we may work the works of God. Give us the to-do list. The same thing that we naturally look for in this statement in the Sermon on the Mount. Here's these words of mine and acts on them. The The same place that our brain goes to, the disciples outright ask Jesus, tell us what that is. Fill in the blank. Please give me the to-do list and let me go on my way and do what's right. Work the works of God. Jesus graciously, graciously answers. And this is so important. So the disciples asked him, what's our end of the bargain? What do we do? What's our task list, our checklist, our to-do list? Jesus answers them with this. He says, uh, this is the work of God. Get out your tablets. Here we go. Believe in him who he has sent. And I can, I, can, I can picture them clicking their pens, waiting to write more. Okay, that's number one. What else? Go on. That's it. That is the, that's the extent of the list. Believe in him. Believe in Jesus. So the way that Jesus frames it is, Believing, trusting him is the work. So when we say, here's these words of mine and act on them, what does that mean? Hear them 
and believe. Believe they're true. Again, Jesus has spent the entire Sermon on the Mount making sure that all the focus, all the emphasis is off of us onto him. He's moving our attention off of us onto him because we are not capable of establishing righteousness in our own strength. We're not capable of of right standing because of our own activity. You are saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. You can't get there. So Jesus, he goes there for us. He has established that for us. I didn't come to abolish the law, the law that you can't fulfill. I didn't come to say, JK, LOL, don't worry about it. I, I fulfilled it. I closed the book, put it on the shelf because it is finished. I did that for you. So the whole conversation is about Jesus' powerful substitution taking our place. He's not going to then kick the ball in our court and say, now what you need to do is, can you be perfect as his father is perfect? No. This never leaves his shoulders. This never leaves his end of the bargain. This is always his. It's only, it's only his. And we are righteous not because of what we do or don't do, only because of what he has done for us. Now, what do we do to live out that righteousness? What do we do to remain in that righteousness? What do we do to let that righteousness seep into our our pores and our bones and, and start to show up as fruit on the tree of our life? Abide in faith. Abide in the vine. What does that mean? Remain in faith. Believe. Trust. Having done all this, stand, stand. Abide is an action. But it doesn't really have a lot of movement to it. You, you abide in a boat. There's no, there's, no, there's no real dramatic story to that. You just, you're there. To abide is to stay there. So in the same way that believe is very passive to us, so is abiding. And it's the same idea. To remain. To stay grafted in the vine Now, there is action. There is more action to this. There is a picture that is being painted. And I'm going to actually take us back to uh, Jesus starting his ministry. And in the message, he began preaching and never stops preaching. Um, He preaches it a million different ways, but it's the same message. But there is an action. There is an action word. There is an idea that involves activity that is being personified. And described here. And it would be the the Greek word metanoia. Metanoia is a Greek word. It has two parts. Meta. We get from that the idea of metamorphosis. Transformation. Meta means to change. Or to transform. Noia is your mind. So metanoia means the transformation or the changing of your mind. From that, we get the idea of, or we get the picture of, repentance. It encapsulates the idea of repentance. Uh, In Romans chapter 12, be transformed, the renewing renewing of your mind. That, That whole conversation that Paul has in Romans chapter 12 is a conversation about repentance. It is... Repentance is an action. It is turning from self to Jesus. It is to turn. 
It is not only to change your mind, it is also to change your focus. It is to turn your eyes to Jesus. That's the action. So whoever hears these words of mine, believes, has faith, allows that to reach the Bible says, Romans 10, 10, it's where the heart a person believes. Allow that to get on the inside of us. And then to also from that, an action from that, allow that to change us. To transform, to, to change our mind, to turn and fix our eyes. Who is our salvation? Is it ourselves? Who is our righteousness? Is it ourselves? Who is our fulfillment? Is it ourselves? Is my checklist, my to-do list, my dream list, is my dream board, is my ideas, is my, is my financial goals, is my, is my financial planning, is it my hobbies, is it my sports team? Are these the fulfillment of my life on planet earth? No. That's wide path stuff and it leads nowhere. Jesus is that and that's exactly what he is saying is hear these words of mine and let them lift your eyes. Let them change your perspective. Let's rewind to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Uh, John the Baptist is preaching. He's preaching. He's baptizing. He's causing a spectacle. He's drawing a crowd. And what he is preaching is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's his message. John the Baptist is arrested. He's, he's, he's ticked off the wrong people. And so he is thrown into prison. And it is from that moment where, where Jesus sets up camp, sets up home base, and begins his ministry. In his ministry, the Bible says that as he sets up camp, sets up home base, begins his ministry, the Bible says that from there on, he preaches the message that John the Baptist himself was preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let me read this to you. This is, this is that same account in the book of Mark, chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. After John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, where he set up his, his, his home base, his operations, preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe. That's the action. What's our responsibility? What is our initiative? Hear these words. Hear the gospel. Since you've been hearing the preaching of the gospel, what is our movement? What is our response to that? Jesus himself says it. Repent and believe. This is the action. To hear these words and act on them is to hear the gospel Repent and believe. Now, repentance, it has a connotation. Have you ever been uh, downtown in a city, maybe here, somewhere else, and there's a guy with a bullhorn or a sign who's dressed uh, in a suit or whatever and yelling at passersby, turn or burn, you better get right or you're going to get left. (laughs) Uh, repent, yelling, and then uh, a lot of their a lot of their what they're saying is fear is fear motivation. Hell's hot, and you have a reservation. 
That kind of thing. The first time I ever saw one of these guys in action, I was going to a Christian concert. The, the group was called DC Talk. You know, he's doing it. Yo, who's doing it? God is doing a new thing. You know, he's doing it. Yo, who's doing it? So good. This is before Jesus Freak. I mean, this was the early stuff. And I went and saw them. And uh, I'm going in there, and I'm such a good little Christian boy. I don't listen to secular music. (laughs) Crazy. I listen to the Christian music. Thank you very much. I'm so holy, I wouldn't even eat Altoids because they were curiously strong. I would only eat Testaments. (laughs) That was a thing. Um, So I'm going in, and this guy is just angry. I was like, why are you so mad? You're going to go to hell! And just furious at everyone. And to me, it encapsulates, that's the mental image I get when I hear the word repentance or repent. But then then you read the Bible. And it says, what leads us to repentance is this goodness, is this kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not fear. In fact, it would be moving away from fear. It's moving, there's no fear in him. There's no fear in love. It's moving towards love. It's moving towards his loving kindness. To repent is simply to allow our minds to be changed. There's a, there's a huge wall in between really living in faith walking in faith uh, actively and not. And that wall is the admission that I don't know everything. That in and of myself, I'm not right. That in and of myself, I'm not the end-all be-all. It is an admission of weakness. It is an admission of (laughs) unrightness. God gives grace to the humble. It is walking through that, that, the, the doorway of humility to say, I don't know everything. There's a great quote that says that the, the Bible was given to us, the scriptures were given to us to help us realize that God is right and the rest of us are just guessing. God himself is right. I don't know. Now, we'll go out there and vehemently declare our opinions as if it's the gospel of, you know, it's, it, this is the truth. We will give our perspective on things. Uh, don't you dare get in a conversation about a college football team in the South. There could be, uh, you could come to blows pretty simply. I mean, it, it wouldn't take much. And so, uh, it, because we, we've elevated simple, trivial things, and we've, uh, we've reduced the things that actually matter. We've gotten things exactly backwards. And to admit, to acknowledge, I, I need Jesus. I need, I, need, I need something that's outside of, is above my pay scale. I, I don't know. I need Christ. So Jesus is preaching from, from that moment, the, the moment of his, the inception of his ministry. He begins preaching this, this, this message of repent and believe that he has come. The truth is here. The North Star is, is here to follow. And so everyone who hears these words of his and acts on them or repents and believes, what happens to those people? Well, this is what he says. They are compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, 
The winds blew and slammed against the house, and yet they did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Anyone who hears the gospel, the good news, repents and believes, trusts in him, is like a wise, wise man, wise person who built their house on a firm, solid foundation. Now, it's important to, to note here, he doesn't say that person will have an easy, breezy life. Uh, for that person, everything is going to go swimmingly. It's going to be easy, breezy, beautiful cover girl. It's going to be perfect. You're going to just like skip and dance slow motion through fields of daisies. No, he says, no, uh, winds are going to blow and, and waves are going to hit you. He says, you're going to go through some stuff. Reminds, reminds me of his statement to his disciples. In this world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. I am your firm foundation. Now, when it says your house is built upon the rock, it's not talking about the rock-solid strength of good ideas and good principles and good morals and good attitudes. He's talking about himself. He himself is our firm foundation. He himself is the cornerstone. He himself is bedrock. When Jesus turns to Peter and says, I, I'm naming you Peter. I'm changing your name from Simon to Peter. And upon this, upon this rock, I will build my church. He's not talking about the rock of Peter because Peter is anything but stable. Then you get the rest of the Bible after that. All the, all the stories about Peter. He was a mess. He's talking about himself. And then what happens for those who don't act on them, who don't repent and believe? They're like a foolish man who built their house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, slammed against the house, and it fell. Great was its fall. You know, the Bible says that pride comes before the fall. We're talking about the same fall. And we're really talking about the same reason for the fall. That uh, there's something in us that, that demands autonomy. The first sin in the garden has been written off as blatant rebellion. I don't think it's that simple. In fact, I wouldn't even say that at all. There's theologians, historians who call the fall in the Garden of Eden an upward fall. Because it was man trying to ascend. It was man's attempt to be his own God. Adam and Eve ate the fruit because they wanted to be more God-like in their own lives. They wanted to be in control. That's the same motivation that, that rules us all these years later. We want to be autonomous. We want to be... What's the the poem Invictus? We want to be the captain of our own soul. I can do it because I believe in myself. I I heard my wife and I watch reality shows because we're gluttons for punishment. We're we're students of of human nature. So we we watch so that we know how to pray. And uh, (laughs) so uh, there was a statement on one of these reality shows. I don't remember which one. They said, if you believe in yourself... You'll never fail. I was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. 
belief in self is a, the, that very definition, that very, that's the definition of failure. We believe in ourself, therefore we are building our lives on the foundation of self. It is sand. It is the, it is the foundation of sand. It is a variable. It is not dependable. It's not bankable. It's not solid. The ups and the downs, you're, you're subject to. There's only one fixed point. There's only uh, one anchor of hope. I want to I read this to you. Uh, we sang this earlier. Uh, but these are the lyrics to the, the beautiful hymn. Uh, uh, this, is, this is Christ's Solid Rock. And these lyrics are so beautiful. If you really take time and think about them, consider them. Um, it describes how we're meant to build our lives. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, then then is all my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. In him, my righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. It's beautiful. And it is absolutely 100% the reality of our lives. There is no other ground there is so many people building their lives on things that they find noble, that they find valuable, that they find fulfilling. But at the end of the day, it all fails. It all falls short. All other ground, not most other ground, not a lot of other ground, all of it. Christ alone. The Bible says that when Jesus had finished these words, when he had finished his sermon, the crowds were amazed. Their jaws were open. Their eyes were huge. Um, and they were amazed because his teaching, he was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. Now, that's an interesting statement because the scribes would be the people that have the moral authority. These would be people who are uh, entrenched with the temple. They would be staunch. Uh, written law keepers. These are the people that really uphold the written law of Moses. Not the oral law, but the, the, the words on the page. But they don't have authority because they can't do what he just talked about. They see him as one having authority because he's the only one on the planet at any time in history who could ever achieve the things that he's talking about. Who can be perfect as his father's perfect? Only him. Who is, who is perfect in thought, action, and deed? Only him. Christ alone. Jesus is the only one that has true authority. In fact, he alone is the way. He alone is the truth. He alone is the, way, uh, the life. And, and, and just a, a comparison that's happening here, just under the, under the radar. And, and a lot of these, the people in the crowd would have picked up on these comparisons. It, it would have felt familiar to what they had heard their entire life. There is a blatant comparison between Jesus and Moses. 
through this whole sermon. Um, Jesus is the true and better Moses. And Moses was the deliverer. Moses was uh, a messenger. Moses was a mouthpiece. And Jesus is a true and better Moses. And if you think about the story of Moses, he was invited alone to ascend uh, a mountain. We call it Sinai. The, the, the name Sinai means thorny or covered in thorns. We talked about that uh, last week, I believe. No one else could go near this mountain. He was the only one given a pass. It was like the, the priest, the high priest, going through the, 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 the veil into the inner sanctum. He alone was given the pass to say, come on up here. And, and in fact, the Bible says if anyone else were to get too near or touch the mountain, drop dead. There was lightning, there was thunder, it was earthquakes, it was unrest, it was fear, it was tense. The perfect standard being delivered to humanity. The impossible, inflexible law of God. No wiggle room, no close enough, impossible, inflexible law of God. Jesus ascends a mountain, but he brings crowds of people with him. Jesus, from this mountain, delivers his authoritative interpretation of this same law. He doubles down and says, in fact, this law that struck fear in the hearts of your ancestors, you're actually watering it down. It's worse than you think it is. That's the Sermon on the Mount. It's not, it's not a to-do list. It's a wall we crash into. It is, it is a cliff that we get pushed off of. It is, it is not good news. As it relates to the laws, it's inflexible. It's impossible. But in, the, in that conversation, he, he establishes the reality that he has come not to do away with it, but to fulfill it. He is the fulfillment of that law on our behalf. And he credits that fulfillment to you. And then he descends. Now, this movement, Jesus descending, is throughout his life and ministry because... The Bible says, who could ever go up the mountain of the Lord? Only those with perfectly clean hands, perfectly pure hearts. In other words, nobody. So he descends. Jesus came down. He, he came down to the lowest point imaginable. He was born in a barn and a feeding trough. He came down because we could never go up. And, and I, I want to end this, this, this section of the series on the Sermon on the Mount with uh, reading just a couple verses after he descends. What's the first thing that Jesus does? And I think it puts an exclamation. And it begins a new chapter, so we might separate a little bit. But this is, this is how the Sermon on the Mount ends. This is the exclamation point on everything he just said. Matthew 8, verses 1 through 3. This is what he does the first thing after he descends the mountain. Jesus came down from the mountain. Large crowds were following him. And get this, a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him, saying, I am willing be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. This is so important to consider along with this entire sermon. Because this sermon is is a declaration, it is a statement of reality that none of us can get there. None of us can work our way there. 
We can't be nice enough. We can't be moral enough. We can't be kind enough. We're not, we're not close. We're not pretty good. We all fall short. In fact, where we stand as it, as it relates to righteousness before God is we are in this leper's shoes. This is us. This is humanity. This is all of us. A leper at that time was relegated. It's an incurable disease. It is a death sentence. You are a walking zombie. You're dead men walking. In fact, I would even say you are legally dead because this is over. And you're relegated to a colony with others to be off, away from humanity, your family, your friends, your career. You're put in this colony to be left for dead. And you could never leave. You could never come out in public. You could never go where other humanity was. And so you have a blatant lawbreaker. In fact, any legalist, any moral elite at that time would be outraged and probably would have him sentenced to death immediately. But he, he knows that there's only one hope here. And he does the unthinkable, leaves his colony to seek out Jesus. Now, this person, if you think about it, is imprisoned by their incurable disease. They are a prisoner. In the same way we all are, we're prisoners in fact, we're, we're dead. Like this leper, we have an incurable disease and we are spiritually dead. The Bible says when, when Jesus found us, we weren't bad. We were dead. The phrase is dead in our transgressions, spiritually dead. And then he makes us alive. Jesus didn't come to make bad people into good people. He, made to, he came to make good pe- dead people live, to resurrect the dead. So Jesus gives life to this dead man. He breaks breaks the chains. He, he, He frees him from the prison of his own disease. In the same way that we are made free in Christ from the disease of our own sin. Once and for all set free from the prison of sin and shortcomings and failure. And and the reason... That lepers were not allowed to be in public is because obviously if they were to touch someone else, that person would become unclean because their disease was stronger than the other person's health. Their uncleanliness was stronger than the other person's cleanliness. But Jesus does the unthinkable. He touches him. He touches the leper. And he does that. He does not get leprosy. He doesn't become like the leper. The leper becomes like him. Because Christ alone, his righteousness, his cleanliness, his purity is greater than our uncleanliness, our impurity, our sin. 
That's why he is the once and for all sacrifice, overpayment for all of our sin, once and for all. Because he is greater than anything we can or cannot do. So he reaches out and makes that person whole, makes that person clean, frees him, liberates him, brings him to a new family where he was relegated on this colony. He is brought into the family. He's been restored with his family. It's beautiful. And it's not accidental. It's not like just happenstance. There, just, there happened to be a leper. This is, there's a reason. It is to remind us of where we stand without Jesus. But we're not without Jesus. The freedom, the wholeness, the righteousness that we find because he reached out. He's captured our hearts. He's a firm foundation. We build our lives on him. This whole sermon is culminated in this moment to say, yes, it's an impossible standard. Yes, we cannot be perfect. Yes, we missed the mark. Yes, we are way further off than we think we are. Could, kind of good, pretty good. We're actually, we, we don't even show up on the radar. We all fall short. Our righteousness, filthy rags. So without Jesus, it's hopeless. But we're not without Jesus. This whole message culminates with Jesus reaching out to the hopeless to give them hope, to give them new life. That's where we stand. 